Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. I'm Molly. So Molly, I want you to be honest with me right now. Okay. I'm always honest with you, Kristen. <laughs> Have you ever faked sick to uh, get out of work? That's, that's so mean, Kristen. <laughs> So Just mean. put Molly on the spot. No, I have never fake sick to get out of work. Oh, that's so good of you. I have. I'm not <laughs> gonna lie. Because uh, every now and then we 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 fake sick to you know get out of work or get out of school. I, I dare someone to email me to say they've never faked an illness before. Because I think that you're lying. Um, but the reason why I'm thinking about this is because, uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I was a kid, when I would fake sick, I would also enjoy the attention that I would get from it. Yeah. Because that meant mom would make her famous homemade chicken noodle soup <laughs> and, um, I would get to, you know, watch movies and it was kind of awesome. Yeah. I mean, I always got uh, beverages with straws when I was sick. Oh, straws. Because my mom said that, you know, it helped you to drink from a straw when you're mm-hmm. sick. Now that I'm older, I see how that's not the best medical advice, but it really seemed to work when I was little. <laughs> but straws are still great. Um, but faking sick every now and then, everybody does it. But if you pathologically fake sick in order to get all those straws and chicken noodle soup, you might have a case of Munchausen. Yes. Now, this is, I think, one of the strangest things I've ever come across, Kristen. Uh, it's, it's called a factitious disorder, which means that people purposely exaggerate, invent, or even cause disease symptoms within themselves. Now, it's not being like hypochondriac. Right. You don't just like hear about an illness and think you have it. It's more like, you know, um, some people, you know, we were reading about this on the internet. Some people like inject urine into their blood or blood into urine to, uh, mess with their samples. Some people might take, uh, laxatives. So they have a lot of gastrointestinal symptoms. It's basically faking sick, so sick that you need to go to a doctor or you, or, you know, you get a lot of attention from all the people around you. Right. And it should also be distinguished from malingering, which is when people pretend to be sick for financial gain or to get out of work. Munchausen is all about 
the attention. And this isn't something that you'll find in the DSM. It's not recognized with a formal diagnosis by the American Psychiatric Association. And it is highly controversial because, A, it's hard to get someone with Munchausen to admit that they're faking. Mm -hmm. And, B, uh, it happens a lot with mothers and children, which we'll get into very soon. Right. Real quick before we get into the mother part, which is why it's why we're talking about it on our podcast. Um, some of the risks that researchers think might lead to a case of Munchausen syndrome include a history of abuse in some form, a serious illness during childhood, a relative who was seriously ill or died, uh, poor self-esteem or some sort of personality disorder. So basically this form of trauma, let's say, leads you to crave attention later mm-hmm. in life so that you will do awful things to yourself. You know, basically one of the symptoms was agreeing to undergo medical tests, even if they're really painful and invasive, uh, because who would want to put themselves through that? Um, so they're saying that, you know, you, you that's how badly you'll crave attention. They'll be like, yes, sign me up for that spinal tap <laughs> beyond, beyond just, you know, a normal um, desire to get well. Mm-hmm. And this was first identified in 1951 by the British physician Richard Asher, who basically noticed this like band of wanderers who would trek from hospital to hospital just to fake all these illnesses. Hospital hobos. Hospital, a band of hospital hobos. And he wrote about the condition in the medical journal, The Lancet, and he named it after a colorful fellow named Baron Karl Friedrich Munchausen, who was a German officer who served in the Russian cavalry in repeated military campaigns against the Turks. And he became very well known for his grandiose storytelling. Mm-hmm. You can never believe a word the guy said. Don't believe a Munchausen. So that's why, you know, if someone comes in and they're complaining of, you know, a sore throat and you've already treated them 10 times for, you know, really wacky things in the past, you know, that's sort of where... The name came from. Now we've got Asher in 1951, but then in 1977, a British pediatrician named Roy Meadow uh, identifies mothers who are causing or fabricating their children's illness. And so it's called Munchausen syndrome by proxy because the mothers use their children as proxies to get the attention from a doctor and also from the loved ones that will naturally gather around when you've got a sick child. Mm-hmm. And uh, just for example, in one case, he found out about a six-year-old girl named Kay who had been admitted to the hospital 12 times for a urinary tract infection and had been treated with eight different antibiotics, none of which took. But then he found out that Kay's mother had altered her urine samples to make it appear as if the child were sick. Mm-hmm. Quite bizarre. And he found um, one parent who had essentially poisoned their child with salt. And, you know, I mean, it just sounds awful. I think if you're any reasonable person, you would never believe that a mother would do that to their own children. And when, when Meadow brought this up, no one did. So he had this colleague named David Southall who videotaped a lot of these suspects of having the syndrome without them knowing. So the most damning tape they found was there was this woman who smothered her baby. That's what the videotape caught. And then it showed her running out and grabbing the doctors and saying, my baby can't breathe. And the videotape was like, well, because you smothered it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was sort of what helped cement this uh, diagnosis of Munchausen by proxy. But then uh, Southall and Meadow really dedicated themselves to rooting out as many of these Munchausen by proxy or MBP cases as they could, and they would examine patient records, use statistics, use the secret 
video surveillance and also something called a separation test to see if a sick child is removed from the mother, see if they somehow mysteriously get better again. Um, and they would try to identify these potential perpetrators and then testify against them in court. And as a result, over a number of following years, hundreds of mothers were forcibly removed from their children because uh, these experts, medical experts, said that they were intentionally making their children sick. Now, one of the most prominent cases that Meadow testified in was the case of attorney Sally Clark, who lost two children to sudden infant death syndrome. And one of the weird things that's attributed to Meadow is this thing called Meadow's Law. Um, he basically said that if you have one case of sudden I- infant death syndrome, that's a tragedy. If you have two in the same family, that's suspicious. And if you have three, that's murder unless the parent can prove otherwise. So he also really made this impact in the UK of tying SIDS to Munchausen. So now this happens to Sally Clark. Two of her children die. And uh, Meadow testifies that the chance of two such deaths in the same family is 73 million to one. And Clark is convicted of murder and sentenced to life in jail. Now, the tricky thing is, is that Meadow's math was off. It was way off. Way off. The actual odds of this uh, is are 200 to 1. And so he had, like, statistical societies writing him in uh, and writing the courts and talking about what a miscarriage of justice this was. So the correct odds of this, it's actually 200 to 1. Okay, so he's got statistical societies writing him, writing the courts, saying this is such a miscarriage of justice. His entire research... Uh, it's, you know, essentially collapses because people are like, this guy is just making up numbers. How do you get from 200 to 1 to 73 million to 1? Right. And not to mention that Southall, his old colleague, the videotape friendly, <laughs> happy colleague, uh, ended up accusing Sally Clark's husband of smothering one of his sons just because of just random behavior that he saw on the tape. And so he basically lost all of his credibility as well. You know, some of those early videotape cases, it came out later that the woman was essentially disturbed because this is more than just a mental illness. This is a calculated decision that women make to harm their child in order to go to attention. It's not, you know, it, it, there was really a separation in some of the stuff we wrote about other mental disorders you might ascribe to these women. So this largely discredited Meadow in the UK. And I'll be interested to see if we have any British listeners out there who can remember Meadow and, and what the, what the perception of him is today. Now, the tale of Sally Clark has a really sad story. She was released from jail, as were many of the people that Meadow testified against. However, she died, uh, likely of suicide in 2007. Yeah, they said that she just never, first of all, never got over the death of her two sons. And then mm-hmm. on top of that, she was completely vilified for supposedly murdering them. Mm-hmm. And even after she won her appeal, after having spent a few years in jail, it was just the psychological toll was just too much. And this is one of the reasons why Munchausen by proxy is so controversial, because um it's, first of all, it's kind of taking this claim of, you know, meddling mothers who are actually just crazed and attention starved and separating them from their children and throwing them in jail when in fact their children might actually be sick. But um, there are some warning signs out there that something might actually be going on. Right. You know, I think when we were researching this, what struck me was there are essentially an equal number of people who are saying it's overdiagnosed and an equal number of people saying it's underdiagnosed. So thanks to Meadows hysteria, there are people saying it happens all the time. And others are saying this is really rare. Yeah, because just for a contrast to Sally Clark, I think that we could um, 
an, an interesting example to look at here in the U.S. would be the case of a Florida mother named Kathy Bush. Um, her daughter Jennifer spent 640 days in the hospital undergoing 40 operations, including the removal of her gallbladder, appendix, and parts of her intestine from ages two through nine. And she became a tireless advocate for a chronically ill child, even appearing with Hillary Clinton back in the day in her quest for health care reform, and then was later convicted for making her daughter sick by infecting her feeding tubes and giving her damaging drugs in 1999. So, you know, on the one hand, we've got, you know, Sally Clark, and then we have Kathy, Kathy Bush. So, you know, what, what do you even look for? Where do you draw the line between just a concerned mother with a sick child and someone who's actually doing something? All right. So let's talk about some of the things that doctors look for. And again, this isn't going to wrap things up for anyone because so many of these, um, symptoms are pretty, contradictory. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's go over some of the warning signs uh, that a doctor may consider when he's got a child that he just can't cure. You know, this doctor, this child keeps coming in, has repeated and unexplained illnesses uh, that never seem to get better. The symptoms only occur when the mother is present. Mm-hmm. Now, this will get tricky because if your child is sick, why would you leave it? The mother's probably, you yeah. know, going to be present a large percentage of the time. If the mother appears to know a lot about medicine, that will tip people off because, you know, if they know that, oh, if I do this to the feeding tube, then it will harm them this way. They know a lot about how to hurt a kid, but also in the age of the internet, a lot of people just know how things work. If you hear your kid is sick, then you might come to the excellent website, HowStuffWorks.com and find out everything you can know about it. So again, some of these symptoms just seem so... um Possibly confusing and, and, you know. And possibly like good parenting. <laughs> exactly. That's why it gets so controversial. Um, now this is one that, you know, might, might help you get to the heart of it. Although the mother stays with the child all the time while, while he or she is in the hospital and tends to him or her well, she may not appear as concerned about the child's well-being as the healthcare professionals who are providing treatment. So basically, she is more attentive to the healthcare professionals and getting their attention than necessarily the attention that they're giving to the child. And that's something that we'll um, talk about in a minute is this kind of odd psychological attachment to doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, a willingness to be in the hospital, a willingness to say, hey, like we were talking about earlier, give the kid a spinal tap. Mm-hmm. He needs them. Yeah. Especially if you're doing it, doctor. And so let's say that. This kind of stuff is going on and you do actually have a woman because it, we keep saying women like, what is it? 85% of the time it's, it's the mother. It's the mother. Um, so the six primary categories of abuse are usually just inventing the symptoms, tampering with test results to encourage a diagnosis, um, deliberately not providing child with nutrients that needs to get better, triggering symptoms, using a low-toxicity poison, such as a laxative. A lot of these cases we'll see what mothers will give their children um, diarrheal medicine or um, stuff that will make them it's throw a up. Mm-hmm. Uh, using a high-toxicity poison on a child, such as using insulin to induce hypoglycemia, and then making the child lose consciousness by deliberately smothering him or her. And on top of that, we have the most commonly fabricated symptoms, including fits, fainting, apnea, hyperactivity, asthma, vomiting, diarrhea, allergy, and rashes. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's, obviously, if, if a mother brings a kid into the hospital and says, you know, last night my kid had a temperature, 
but then the kid shows up without the temperature. You would believe the mother who set her kid up had a temperature, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's these, that's sort of how a symptom can be faked, just to give you an example of how that could happen. Yeah. Which is part of why diagnosing is, again, hard, because um, the separation test, we were talking about this earlier, if they separate the kid from the mother and then it stops throwing up because the mother's not around to, you know, give the kid Ipecac anymore, then, you know, people are like, oh, that must be, you know, the mother giving the kid Ipecac. But sometimes just when treatment stops, you know, symptoms like that go away. We read one example of a woman who her child was going through this really extreme treatment. And when the when the doctors were like, oh, I don't think these kids are that sick. We're going to stop the treatment. Their symptoms went away, but it was just a result of the treatment, not necessarily the mother's doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that this would also be a good time to point out that this is a very rarely diagnosed condition. I think in the UK, a lot of this happens in the UK, we, we've discovered. Anyway, um, in the UK, there are about 50 cases per year. Mm-hmm. But the question is, Molly, for those 50 cases per year, why on earth would these mothers intentionally hurt their children? Because this isn't just physical abuse. It's it's a whole different kind of abuse because it's so much tied to this idea of uh, needing the attention from these healthcare workers. Right. These women seem to have this need to basically just interact with a doctor um, in a way that's not confrontational. It's why a woman might choose to do Munchausen by proxy as opposed to just becoming, you know, faking illness in herself. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of um, talk in one article we read about how being uh, the mother of a sick kid allows you to be kind of the ideal mother. You know, you are obviously concerned about your kid's well-being because you're there in the hospital and you've got a person whose job it is to pay attention to you and to help you. And so they were saying that some women just crave that, you know, approval and interaction with a, you know, a pillar of society as, as doctors are. And if I may quote Herbert Schreier in his book, Hurting for Love, these mothers are just seeking a reparative relationship because they felt they weren't valued in their family of origin. Now, Schreier also goes on to discuss the erotomaniacal pursuit of a fictive phallic power that these women have. So, <laughs> well, he says that in a lot of instances, you find a missing father. Yeah. So that, you know, like uh, people who like the symptoms we ran down of, of Munchausen earlier, people have these traumas in their past and somehow being in a place that is designed to make you well, you know, they think there's some link of these people going trying to find this wellness cure for some deep, dark past hurt. But, you know, there are plenty of people who do have really troubled childhoods who don't grow up and put salt in their kids' food. But again, these kind of allegations are so controversial because a lot of times it's just going to boil down to disagreements between mothers and healthcare workers between what is best for their children. Also, in a day and age when, like you said, if you think that you have a collection of symptoms that might be some kind of illness or disorder, you can go online to HowStuffWorks.com or to something like WebMD and put everything in and diagnose yourself with, say, colon cancer, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and it just kind of gets in your head and it might lead you to, you know, getting into these heated debates with doctors and demanding tests and insisting that you do have something. And it was interesting in one article, it pointed out 
that if fathers were doing the same type of thing, they would just say, they would actually praise him and say, oh, what an, what an involved parent he is. Right. But with mothers, they're saying, wow, this meddling mother really needs to go home. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very interesting. I don't know if I would be able to spot a case of a meddling mother versus uh, a possible Munchausen mother. Um, They do say that Munchausen mothers, you know, once the kid dies, obviously you don't want that to be the time you can figure out uh, a case of it. But they have no remorse. And at the funeral, they usually seem kind of excited about it. You know, they they're reveling in all this attention. They're probably talking more to the doctor than they are to family members. And if you remember the scene from The Sixth Sense, uh, there's a one of the dead people that Haley Joel Osment sees is this girl who was poisoned by her mother. Mm-hmm. And Haley Joel Osment sees the mother at the funeral. And they're already whispering in the background like, oh, now she has another sick child. And so uh, it's, it is uh, uh, it can be a deadly cycle. And because they don't show any remorse or admitting that they did any wrong, that's why they'll try and separate the child and usually not give them back. There's usually very little hope for reconciliation once you've had an allegation of Munchausen thrown against you. Mm-hmm. Um, now, because these allegations are so harmful and can easily result in social services stepping in and taking the child away from them, um, a, some mothers are actively lobbying against these, um, it even being allowed to happen. For instance, we found this organization, MAMA is the acronym, and it's Mothers Against Munchausen by Proxy Allegations. Um, basically, they say our, our mission is to stop the assault on innocent parents from Munchausen by Proxy Allegations and to reveal the ulterior motives of the accusers, prevent the broad label from being used in the court of law, and hold accountable any physician who acts as judge and jury. Because as a mother, and I think that I can say this, not being one. You're not a mother. I'm not a mother, but I think that I can put myself in their shoes for a minute and imagine, you know, maybe as an aunt, okay, mm-hmm. let's say, if I am, you know, any more protective of what my, my child than I am of my niece and nephews, then Lord only knows, you know, what kind of hell I would raise if I thought that my child was in some kind of physical danger. Mm-hmm. So... I can see, I can see kind of both sides of it. You know, doctors want to make sure that they're doing the best for the children. So do mothers. And there can certainly be a conflict of interest there at some point. But, you know, doctors do need to step in and stop cases of child abuse, which I think is, I mean, that's essentially what Munchausen is. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's going to be controversial for, for a while to come, I think. Yeah. But I think it is also too worth noting that it is extremely rare. Yes. So according to some people, that's the thing. Overdiagnosed or underdiagnosed. We don't know. But we'd love to hear what you guys think about this. Our email address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And we have a few listener emails to read. I'll start with one that's not signed. Um, This is about the What Constitutes an Eating Disorder podcast. The listener writes, I suffered from bulimia on and off for 10 years. At times, the binge purge cycle consumed my life so much that I abandoned friends and other fun experiences in order to preserve my disorder. During the worst of it, in high school, no one ever called me out on my admirable behavior or relationship with food, and simultaneously it was my biggest fear that someone would. However, now I would suggest to anyone that suspects a friend suffers from bulimia to let her or him know that you support him or her and love them no matter what, and that if they need someone to discuss any challenges with, you are there with non-judgmental ears. Eventually in college, I had friends I could talk about my problems with and have been totally 100% 
binge purge free for two and a half years. I think many people oversimplify eating disorders when actually they are symptoms of deeper issues that will only heal by being acknowledged. So don't be afraid to say something. All right. Well, I've got an email here in regard to the same podcast, and this is from Hannah, and she says, I was totally astonished that you skipped over the very important point of self-esteem. For most women with eating disorders, especially young women, this is a huge factor. For high school girls with anorexia and bulimia, poor self-image is often the reason they start to starve themselves or vomit up all their food. From there, it progresses to a legitimate brain disorder, but it often starts as a choice. I myself am in high school... And I can tell you that many, many girls feel overwhelmed and completely without control over their lives. This is usually how destructive behaviors like cutting, eating disorders, or drug use begin, as a desperate attempt to exercise control over whatever aspects of their lives they can and diffuse emotional pain. Regarding your advice, I tried several times to tell a friend with an eating disorder about my concern, and it didn't help. No offense, but it probably wouldn't be very helpful in other cases either. Telling someone that you love and care about them and want them to be healthy is definitely a good idea because it helps them know that you're there for them and that you're not judging them, but I don't think it would ever make them stop their disorder outright. It might even give them a rush of power that they can keep going, that they can keep doing what they're doing and you can't do anything about it. And as I said, it's largely about control. I think that even if it costs you your friendship, the most important step you can take is to get the problem out into the open. So thank you, Hannah. All right, so if you want to send us an email, it's momstuffathowstuffworks.com. Uh, during the week, we've got a blog called How To Stuff. And we have an article, if you would like to read more about the Munchausen Syndrome and Munchausen Syndrome by proxy, head on over to howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands. Not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And for a limited time, get more fun for less with the Michigan Bundle for just $49.99. Exclusive to Michigan residents only. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.